Hello, friends and listeners of the LeaderCast podcast. This is Mo, the producer, jumping on really quick before this episode starts to let you know that we are going to be wrapping up season one of the podcast. The final episode in season one will be coming out on April 23rd. We are going to be coming back with an even better season two later this year. Stay tuned on our socials for updates as we know more, and thank you for being an avid listener. What do your people do when they're not happy? Do they lock arms with you or do they and go into battle or do they turn and run? Because it's one thing to say, you know, hey, it's great. We're, you know, we're having fun and we're doing good things for the world. But it's another thing to say, okay, what happens when they're going to get stuff? What happens when you have to compete? What happens when the company is going bankrupt? What happens when, you know, the forces of the market just don't agree with your opinion? And that's the time when you see great leadership emerge. Welcome to the LeaderCast podcast, a weekly deep dive into the stories that transformed our guests into leaders worth following. I'm your host, Joe Boyd. If you've been enjoying the podcast, thank you so much for being a listener. One simple thing you can do to help us out is give a review wherever you listen. Today's guest is Don Schmicka. He is a world-renowned academic researcher who's worked with over 7,000 CEOs to help them figure out what it means to win. His background is in human grouping. This is a super fascinating conversation, and you're going to find out the one thing he learned from his partner who spent his life pulling dead people off of mountains when they died. Don Schmicka, welcome to the LeaderCast podcast. We are so excited to have you today. Great. Thank you. I uh, can't wait to hear more. I, I got kind of some bullet points on your story, and it looks adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> I've had moments. Yeah. I've had moments. Uh, for those of us that aren't aware of your work, could you kind of tell us uh, what you do, what you're into today, and uh, what your kind of uh, uh, purpose and passion is in the world, and then maybe we'll back up and see how you got here? Uh, sure. I mean, right now we're working on um, entrepreneurship, exploring that. That's, that's where our new research is. And looking at, you know, why, why do a lot of entrepreneurships fail and what do we, what do we do about that? So we're applying our anthropological and genetic and biological research into that area. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool. Uh, we've got a book coming out this fall called Winners and Losers. And basically it's what I've learned from 30,000 CEOs on how to come out on top. And, uh, and again, we'll have the medical backgrounds and the, and it kind of exposed some mythologies that, uh, we're going to debunk some ideas and replace them with actually uh, proven, validated. Okay, gotcha. Facts. Can we can we get one hot off the press idea before the book comes out right now? Oh, Jesus! So many. Um, one hot idea would be we notice that we're teaching leadership all wrong. Uh, that you know, we try to start these businesses. Entrepreneurs try to. Um, they think that followers follow leaders, and I think we we teach that a lot in our universities. And uh, but we found out that for some reason, when Apple they ended up um, supporting our innovation research through Cameron Luckman and um, my colleague, and I couldn't understand why Steve Jobs uh, led in a way that they wrote books about him that said. He didn't do it. He didn't do what we said we should be doing. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people said a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I've heard that. (laughs) And uh, I thought, how does a person who is, is talked to about that way create the most powerful company in the world? Yeah. I mean, like, have we changed our MBA education to say, Hey, look, uh, 
we missed something because this guy violated uh, what we teach, and yet he created the most powerful company. But for me, that was a question. So I thought somebody should ask it. Yeah. So I asked it. <laughs> and what we found out is that um, he wasn't alone. There were a lot of um, great leaders throughout history who were assholes, and they ended up creating powerful um, followers. So it, it really, our conclusion from the research was that followers don't follow leaders like we're teaching. They're following the story you represent. So we started applying a Viking technique called a compelling saga. We began to realize that leaders should be taught that people are following the saga you represent, the, the story you represent. And then when we started doing that, we started seeing companies turn around. We started seeing sales growth go three to five, in some cases, 10 times higher than they were before. And that's when all of a sudden we started getting a lot of um, uh, requests for speeches and workshops and things like that. So that's just one of the myths that we've been debunking over the years. And um, I don't know, CEOs love it. I mean, I've, like I said, I've trained about 30,000 CEOs and they, uh, they love the science. They love the validation and the results from it. Okay. I may want to come back to that. Cause I, uh, uh, my general working hypothesis is the world needs less assholes. So we'll see. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll come back to that and find out if that's true or not at the end. Um, let's, uh, let's go back though. I know you, I know you have an academic background and all this, but could you, would you mind take us uh, way, way back to the beginning when you were uh, a young lad trying to think about maybe uh, what inspires you, what you might want to do with your life, even as a kid, what things were fascinating you? Could you, could you just give us a window into those early years and what, what you were uh, into and thinking about? I think it was the police telling me I'd have to repeat my senior year because I had hooked my entire senior year of high school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that, was, that was an opening event. And, uh, I mean, I was in rock bands. I was trying to be cool. I still try to be cool today, but it's just, it's not working yeah, the out. Older like you get, just, they see through it. That's what I'm finding. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> yeah. It kind of slips away, but, um, but I, I, uh, I was just bored. I mean, I, I, I didn't find, so anyway, they said, look, you got like two months to do, entire senior year and I was like game on and I um, the teachers were great they all rallied and supported me and gave me all the books I had to read and all these tests I had to take so in two months I did like my entire senior year but um, what changed for me is um, I was working in my, my uncle's gas station and I noticed that all the guys with the great cars had education so I thought well maybe I should drop out of rock bands and yeah. <laughs> so there was a community college up the street and um I started going there and they didn't care whether I showed up because they had my money. I right. thought that was interesting. So I got motivated and I got exposed to a lot of things that I wanted to learn about, you know, the early days of electronics and computers and anthropology and this and that. And, but a couple of people saw something uh, in me. Um, one was a person who was running student activities that I was actually heading up at the time. And her husband, she came out of, uh, uh, Boston, Cambridge area. Her husband was an MIT uh, grad. And, and there was this physics professor who was a retired uh, MIT grad. He was just teaching for fun at the local college. And uh, they both said, why don't you go to apply to MIT? And I'm, I was like, I have no idea what that is. It's yeah. like, was that a trade school? I mean, I didn't know what, what the heck it was. And um, so I, I did because they said I should. And um, I went through a battery of tests, which is a whole 
a lot of grueling testing and, and they, and I got in. And, um, so next thing I know, I'm in Cambridge trying to figure out what is this all about? And, but it really opened up the door to areas of science and engineering. I never had an opportunity to, to, to explore before. And I, and, and they were very, um, open for students to explore whatever areas they wanted. I ended up you know, automating the Harvard MIT Biomedical Laboratory. I ended up getting involved in the early AI, you know, artificial intelligence um, development. I ended up working on nuclear missile um, <laughs> guidance systems. Uh, and I just, um, yeah, uh, it was fabulous. And that's when I began to notice humans. So I, I did part of my degree in, in planetary physics. And in planetary physics, I um, started noticing this planet, and I <laughs> noticed humans, and I'm like, I became, became fascinated with how humans group. Um, so I left, uh, graduated, went to Hopkins to do my graduate research. I ended up teaching there in the area of um, studying human grouping behaviors. And again, I had access to a lot of brilliant people, and um, I got attached to the executive MBA program. So I started hanging out with a lot of executives and I began seeing what they were struggling with around the failure rate of management theory. And that took me into a whole different direction. So I was asked to um, see if there's a biological primal pattern that's driving profitability and growth. Gotcha. <laughs> wow. So, um, you know, could I explain why management theories fail to implement at such high rates and, um, like if you go on Google Scholar and do a search for management theory failure, you'll get over like 5 million hits of scholarly papers published on this. Yeah. So it wasn't like a new idea. I was just asked to try to explain it from a, a scientific biological level. And so that's what started it. And we started discovering some amazing things. So Oxford had let me publish um, an ancient manuscript they had for training samurai executives. Mm. Wow. And so I published a book called The Code of the Executive, and the code of the executive took off, and like a dozen languages, uh, I lost count. And um, people started saying, can you teach us more about what you're discovering? So a lot of the work that we ended up with was not only scientifically validated to explain the failure rates of management theory, but how to drive it to improve sales and performance by magnitudes more than the people had seen using traditional um, consulting models. Um, but it was also validated through thousands of years of, um, of history. So um, that's a good way to validate a theory. Has it, has it worked for more than a few centuries? Sure. Uh, so that's <laughs> what happened. That's how I got here. So now I, now I train about 700 to a thousand CEOs a year and um, write books and we work with companies and I'm having a ball. I'm learning and I'm hanging around some brilliant people. I'm just, like just yesterday, I had lunch um, with uh, George Stalk, who developed the uh, lean manufacturing revolution yeah. 20 years ago. And um, he's got a number of Harvard Business Review articles, um, just published uh, one this past year on disruption. And he just told me, I've got a new one out. He just emailed me this morning. So I got to look that up. Yeah. Um, but it's it's great because um, I'm able to um, just hang out with these brilliant people and learn from them and try to uh, parlay that into uh, ap actionable ideas um, with, for CEOs and driving their companies forward. So that's kind of a long answer to your question. No, I love it. I you, you kind of buzz all the way through, which is great. Uh, I, I do have some, I guess some uh, specific questions with your background that I'm, I'm curious about as 
um, as a leader of this organization. And then of course, LeaderCast, uh, you know, we have uh, broad influence over almost every sector in the world. Uh, we're the worst and be- the, the worst and best thing about LeaderCast is we're for leaders everywhere. So um, it's not, it's not one particular kind of leader, uh, uh, big, bigger companies and small mom and pop companies and school teachers and moms and dads, people just find us and want to be better leaders. So, uh, I think I have a, I guess an assumption that you can let me know how I'm doing that it feels like, uh, the world is more desirable and, uh, open to a more sort of empathetic leader, maybe a little more vulnerability as opposed to what I would consider like a classic sort of, uh, confident walls around me, you know, the, the, um, the sort of dictatorial kind of leader. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm curious if, uh, I guess what made me think of that is I, I have assumptions that the uh, samurai executives weren't super touchy feely soft skills, but I might be wrong. Uh, so, uh, is that, is my perception that the world is moving a little more that way accurate in your mind? And, and what are your thoughts on whatever I'm trying to ask you? (laughs) Not a great question. I understand. No, it's fine. It's, uh, I, I get it. Um, yeah, I think we're moving back to empathy and, uh, vulnerability and trust. It's not a new idea. I think during the industrial revolution, We've shifted our beliefs to running the world like a machine. And so we might have mm. uh, went, we left it to become more machine based in terms of our style of gotcha. leadership. And, and so, and it worked. I mean, there were a lot of great corporations that were uh, built around that. But um, in the ancient ways, you wanted people to be willing to do a couple of things we should be teaching more of in our leadership programs and in our uh, schools and our, in our, um, and our internal corporate universities, I think a required course that is not offered anywhere is, um, are you willing to suffer and sacrifice with us? Hmm. And suffering and sacrifice is not found in any academic curriculum. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're in the military. Right. And what I found is, why is it missing? Because it was always there. Like, why did we stop? And so for you to be willing to suffer and sacrifice with someone, you have to have a level of trust and and, uh, and realize that some of these areas of, of empathy are important because you, you have to join to believe in the cause that's ahead. Mm. We don't teach that. You know, we kind of stopped over the past hundred years um, to do that. Now, some companies still do, and they're really great, and you can see the results they produce. But generally, we don't teach people how to die for a cause. So we lost it. And now we get books coming out on empathy and vulnerability and all that. I'm thinking, well, thank God we've been doing this for thousands of years. Why did we stop? Yeah. We think like it's a new idea. It's not a new idea. Um, uh, uh, organizations that have been willing to uh, suffer and sacrifice together for a greater cause outperformed organizations that were just following a blind leader with it, that they didn't trust. Yeah. Or a leader that just wanted to make everybody happy. I know there's a big happy employee movement yeah. going on. It was more like, um, you know, it's, yeah, happy employees are great, but the big question none of these authors and speakers are asking is what do your people do? What do your people do when they're not happy? Yeah. Do they lock arms with you or do they and go into battle or do they turn and run? And we use a lot of military terminology because it's the most documented industry in the world. 
and the most interesting litmus test of performance. Because it's one thing to say, you know, hey, it's great. We're, you know, we're having fun and we're doing good things for the world. But it's another thing to say, okay, what happens when they're going to get stuff? What happens when you have to compete? What happens when the company is going bankrupt? What happens when, you know, the forces of the market just don't agree with your opinion? And that's the time when you see great leadership emerge or not. But, um, yeah, so I, I think, I think when we work with companies and we're able to invoke, uh, this level of performance, execution speed and decisiveness and accountability go up. Hmm. And when it goes up, sales go up, competitive advantage goes up. So we've learned a lot by, like I said, working with great organizations, learned a lot working with Black Hawk Down and, and Matt Aversman and people like this in terms of how do you get superior performance and what's, what is, what are you doing that we're not teaching in our business schools? That's what I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah. And so that's how we end. I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur. I've started a few businesses. Some of them have worked. Uh, and uh, I do wonder, like, I, I, what you're saying makes total sense and resonates as, as truth to me. I also just, you know, happen to have a, a theology and a religion degree. Um, so I can clearly oh. see in, in religious leaders how, um, I mean, take Jesus as an example, is, is certainly rooted in suffering for a cause, right? His whole story ends up in, I mean, suffering. So yeah. um, as, but I guess in my mind, there's, and any, any great causal leader, like a Martin Luther King, anyone, Gandhi, anyone we think of, it's going to make sense that there's a greater cause and there's suffering. Because to me, those feel like, you know, the ultimate fight of humanity to sort of overcome ourselves or something like that. Uh, but then I think of, of businesses I've led in the past or my friends are leading or the folks that listen to this that are like, look, you know, I, I started, a, I started in a company selling a better toothbrush and people really like it. And, but even I, as the leader, don't wake up in the morning and think this is my great cause in the world. It's just a nice little company I'm running. So, uh, for, for a lot of us that get that, but don't honestly in ourselves see maybe, Maybe we think there's there are more important causes in the world than what I'm doing every day, but I'm doing a good thing. How how do you bridge that gap without, I guess, feeling like I don't know, my words would be like a con artist or like a crooked televangelist or like you don't you don't want to like convince the people following you that this is some changing the world thing if you know it's maybe not just making the world a little better. So, do you, what do you think? What how do you deal with that if that's sort of your inner dialogue as as a leader? Developing world-class leaders in your community is now easier than ever with LeaderCast. In addition to our flagship May event, becoming a presenting partner allows you to stream multiple events per year, each with an opportunity to earn money. The new LeaderCast lets you invite 1 to 1,000 people with unlimited streaming opportunities. Check out more at LeaderCast.com or the link in our bio. Oh, I, I remind people that, I don't know, uh, maybe you're selling a commodity product like coffee or tennis shoes. <laughs> yeah. What happened? It became explosive. Yeah. You know, it's like $500 for a pair of tennis shoes. Are you kidding me? I mean, really? Yeah. Or, or five bucks for a cup of coffee? Really? Like, what happened? Yeah. What happened is somebody had something. They thought something. They saw something that was different. 
and uh, they were able to create some meaning around it. So I, uh, what we have found is that um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Simon Sinek's coach, uh, Mark Levy, who's a great brand guy, I, I got him working with me because I'm like, what, what do I do with all this research? Yeah. And, you know, thousands of CEOs and companies are working with. And he said, okay, let me take a look at that. But one of the things that came out of it was he had to do a, a talk at a major conference on what's your definition of strategy. And he went and interviewed the, the top minds and the top CEOs in the industry. And he said, your, Don, your definition was the biggest buzz of the conference for days. And I said, what? He goes, basically, the best way to look at it is what does winning mean and how do we do it? Yeah. And that is the best definition of strategy. And so it comes back to what does winning mean? Because people want to do that. You know, they, in fact, this book I have coming out in the fall called Winners and Losers has to deal with that. You know, we should be teaching, we should be teaching more about how to lose powerfully because great entrepreneurs lose powerfully. Hmm. And you mentioned in your case, you had some, you, some things didn't always go well. Yeah. But there was something about losing powerfully where we learned and we grew and we got a better insight and awareness and all that comes together. So when I look at these top entrepreneurs in the world, their history that people never write about are the, all the failures they've had leading up to this moment. Mm. And so um, when we talk about, so, so you're making a toothbrush. Uh, what does winning mean anyway, you know, to you? And people will rally around that. Gotcha. So if you, if you look at the meaning of, of that it, it 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 takes on a whole new dimension and look all the commodity products i mentioned as an example which became incredibly highly profitable highly branded because somebody made it mean something that's the story right the um I'm a story nerd. Uh, we generally root those the soul podcast and kind of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey if we can uh but oh yeah yeah, yeah. um but that's what I hear you saying is people people rally around a story more than even a person or, or even a cause. Sometimes it's the story that they believe and yeah. and want to be a part of. Um, there's a new, uh, I was just fascinated. I, I obviously hadn't planned on saying this, but the, there's a new uh, movie coming out about the Air Jordans. I don't know if you had seen, uh, seen that. Uh, I heard about or it. Or the trailer or whatever. Yeah. And there's also one coming out about Tetris. It's just interesting to me now that like our movies are about our products uh, and the stories behind them. Um, but I want to see both of them. I'm sucked in. I want to see it. Uh, while we're there, since with all your research, do you have any thoughts specifically for those of us that those folks that uh, with me are kind of way into story theory around like Campbell's hero's journey and how that plays into leadership or sort of uh, uh, this idea of, uh, storytelling and telling a great story. What anything you've learned through your research about how great leaders use story, are storytellers, etc. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, yes, story works because our, our species has evolved following story. So, you know, uh, the neocortex, when that was an evolutionary event, all of a sudden we were able to have thoughts. When thoughts, we were able to have story. So you go back for thousands of years or you talk to any anthropologist, a lot of the grouping behavior and a lot of the expansion of markets or more, more migrations in the day were around people following a story for what's ahead. And um, that always will be there, I think, until we get replaced as a species. <laughs> uh, so the problem, though, is I found when we did autopsies of companies, because 
you know, we found out like every year there's a best-selling book with a top, top uh, great companies. And we all want to be like these companies and we try to emulate these companies and what do they do to become great? But nobody talks about like three years later, they're off the list. I'm like, why did they die? And, and so when we started doing our autopsy research, we found out it's not just about the story. The story needs to make strategic sense. So when we run into companies where they've got this great story, it's like, great, but how does that support you winning? And then they can't answer the question. They like, shut up. They're like, oh, I never thought nobody ever challenged us that way. It says, no, that's the point. Sure, you want story, but the story has to index strategy. Story has to index or something to allow you to win. However you define it, you know, I mean, the winning could be a purpose in the world or some great cause you're behind or capturing a market or, you know, bringing a new technology to the surface, whatever that is. But what's the strategy behind the story? Because so many autopsies are out there of companies that died with great stories because the stories didn't make strategic sense. They didn't empower any sort of winning. Everybody felt good. It was a great rally. It was a great cause, but it didn't mean anything when yeah. it came to winning. What do you do if someone's listening to this and they're, maybe they're leading something that's going pretty well, but as they hear you talk, they're like, I don't really know how, what we're trying to do, like what our win is. Like as a leader, when you have that realization, like I, sh- I should probably figure this out. Uh, what are the first, what's the first thing you need to do as a leader when you start to realize that? I'd say figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, you know, it's, it's time to go back because we found that there's another myth you asked me earlier. Yeah. Um, what myths are we debunking? And here's another myth, a myth that might help uh, these people. Uh, and that is the myth that we're doing strategic planning and we're not. When we look at the autopsies and we review, we have a lot of CEOs saying, Hey, can you look at our plan? Like what's missing? We find that most strategic plans are tactical. So that's the thing. A lot of us are doing strategic planning and we're not. We're really developing tactical plans that are analytical that came out of, well, we did this great SWOT analysis and this analysis and that analysis, but none of that strategy. That's all tactics. Because the strategy is around when, when you look at companies that start off and they're small business and all the management consultants and industry experts say they're never going to make it. They're never going to make it. And this company rises up and not only makes it, but dominates their entire market. At that point, all the consultants shut up. <laughs> sure. They just shut up. Yeah. This big company, this small company became huge, became big. And it, and I was always curious, why has no one asked the question? How did that happen? Here's a company all the experts said would fail and they didn't. Yeah. And they outmaneuvered the rest of found out is they were using intuition. They were out intuiting the enemy's moves. They were out intuiting the market, they were shifting their beliefs around what, you know, where the real battlefield was and who the real enemy was and how we're going to win. And that's what strategy is. So I would say to people that are maybe getting a little nervous about these questions is open up your strategic plan. Does it show how you're going to outmaneuver does it does, does it really define the battlefield tomorrow, your market landscape tomorrow, and where you're going to position yourself, and how you're going to outmaneuver, how you're going to out-intuit the forces against you? If it does not, you don't have a strategy. You've got tactics. So, therefore, I would say rework your strategy so it's really strategic because when you come up with a winning formula, 
here's where we're going. Here's what's going to be against us. And here's how we're going to outmaneuver that to win. Now that becomes the source of creating a story. Super helpful. That, that, uh, that resonates uh, with me very closely that I will not even uh, admit on my podcast, just in the day-to-day uh, oh, living this, this particular company I'm leading right now, there's such a, um, in everything we ever do, the, t- I think tactics make us feel safe and comfortable, you know, like, like yes. in, con- in control. And so, um, and I hear you differentiating that between uh, strategy, which sometimes probably feels like you were talking about. It's going to, may include some suffering and some risk, uh, but that's, that's- probably what it's all about. So, uh, you have an interesting point there. You have an interesting point. If I, if I may, um, it is about safety because yeah. when we did our models, when we try to unearth the ancient model, our ancestors use that apply today. It's, it's, it's leaders, leaders lead by altering the decisions of their humans and how they alter and align those decisions is by altering their beliefs. But then we get then we get seduced into these tools, which we need tools. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I got to do? How do I do it? You know, thirty five thousand business books a year are published on what do I do and how do I do this differently, which yeah. is great because tools are great. But the problem is we get seduced by them because they make us feel safe, because the analysis and the models and the things you said are exactly it's safety. So we get seduced by the human instinct for safety and we get seduced by our tools. Now, when my co-author, Chris Warner, when we wrote this book on uh, high altitude leadership, he was pulling dead bodies off of mountains and he's probably the top rescue climber in the world. And uh, I was climbing with Chris and we did this NBC thing with uh, K2 and that's where the book came out. We did it live, high, high altitude leadership. Dead bodies, when he's pulling them off of mountains or clutching their tools, because they believed they would make them safe. And I said, Chris, dead companies, same thing. Interesting. Clutching their tools, all their processes, all their systems, all their new software, all their new best-selling books on their shelves, and they all die clutching those tools. Hmm. And that's the point. We're, we're reaching for safety, whereas your point is well taken. We should be reaching more for the risk, what you call the art the art of crafting beliefs. There are no tools there. We're looking as an entrepreneur yourself. I mean, there was no checklist. There was no formula. Yeah. You were like figuring stuff out as you were blazing the trail to this new possibility. And that's, I think, which we should be teaching more of. Well, you got me fired up. I'm ready to go lead today. Thank you so much for, uh, for being a part of this. Uh, Don, if folks want to connect with you or buy your books or hire you as a consultant or anything in the world, uh, how should they get, get in touch with you? Well, you can email me at Don at SagaLeadership.com or the website is Saga. We stole it from the Vikings. <laughs> Saga Leadership. S-A-G-A Leadership.com. And um, yeah, love to get the word out there. Awesome. Don, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be in touch again. Great. Thanks. In today's ultra-competitive job market, Top-tier talent are leaving companies in search of top-tier professional development. Now more than ever, you must invest in your emerging leaders. LeaderCast 365 is a world-class professional development system featuring access to three annual LeaderCast events, a post-event journey to activate the inspiration and insights gained from LeaderCast events, plug-and-play lunch-and-learn programs with group discussion questions, concise video courses to address weaknesses and build upon strengths, and our library of more than 1,200 short-form videos from a slate of industry experts organized into 16 key professional development categories. 
invest in your all-star employees, and attract new top talent to join them with LeaderCast 365.